Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So we find ourselves this morning in Ephesians 4, and we're actually in the last three verses that finish off the sentence that Dave did last week. Um, so if you weren't here last week or you haven't listened to Dave's message last week, I encourage you to do so. Um, I will go over it a bit because it would seem completely out of context if I don't mention some of it um, because it starts halfway through a sentence uh, today. Um, but we'll see how we get on. So Paul is in a, in a sort of... In the book of Ephesians, Paul's actually speaking about the church specifically. Um, if you haven't gathered that um, from the last few messages, um, I've now said it explicitly. And in this particular passage that Dave spoke on last week and that I'm speaking on this week, it's about unity and what that looks like, what speaks into unity um, and what the church is growing towards. And so what he's talking about um, so far has been how the church needs to mature. Now, there are a few different types of maturity. So there's physical maturity and there's growing up. There's not much we can do about that to hasten that. You either do or you don't. There's emotional maturity, so there's the capacity for self-modulation. The worship pastor's son, mate, I tell you. There's cognitive maturity, which is abstract reasoning. There's social maturity. It's how you deal with people. Quite often, though, people assume that because we physically mature, that all the other maturities will come along as well. And no one's at the same point. Um, I've met, like, almost quite young kids who seem more mature than some adults I know. Not talking about anyone in this room, so you're all safe. It's okay. But another maturity that I haven't listed so far, which Paul is actually talking about in these in this verse in these verses, is spiritual maturity. Now, spiritual maturity is dealt with several times throughout the Bible, in other places. So it's it's uh, in First Corinthians, it's in Galatians, there's Hebrews, it's in First Peter. And I'll just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, just so you get a sort of soundbite about what most of the passages on maturity or spiritual maturity sound like. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for, uh, not ready for it. In fact... You are still not ready for it 
because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, you are not worldly and behaving. Are you not worldly, worldly? Sorry, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, "I belong to," oh, we will stop it there. That's a specific Corinthian thing that he's dealing with. So Paul is constantly looking at when he talks about maturity, the difference between what it means to be immature and the difference between being mature. So there's an expectation that you can become spiritually mature. Paul, in chapter 4, the start of what we're looking at, also describes what the outworking of spiritual maturity looks like. So Ephesians 4. And if you're wondering yet again why there's no Bible verses, it's because there's no one at the back. So um, I'm going from the Christian Standard Bible if you have your apps, if you want to read along specifically. Otherwise, please read along in your Bibles. Ephesians 4 verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A community that is exhibiting spiritual maturity is a community that is exhibiting those characteristics. Paul even tells us that Christ has given us gifts to help us grow into our spiritual maturity, to equip the saints. Chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. One of the things that's important that Dave mentioned last week is that the church is already the body of Christ. It is already the fullness of Christ. We're not trying to establish what the body is. We already are that. Just as a reference, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23. Sorry, I'll start at verse 22. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So we are a whole bunch of things, and Christ has given us a whole bunch of things. So what is our part in this? This morning, these morning, this, sorry, this morning's verses are chapter 4, starting at verse 14, going through to verse 16. And we'll just read through them. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the teaching of techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. 
Now, chapter 14 is a direct contrast to chapter 13. So chapter 13 talks about growing into maturity, while chapter 14 describes the results of the lack of maturity. So what exactly does Christian maturity look like? A mature Christian is a believer whose life that takes on the characteristics of Christ-likeness. But what does that mean? What are the quantity or the qualities that mark out a person as being Christ-like? I have a couple to at least start us off. One characteristic. A mature Christian establishes themselves in the foundational teachings of Christ and the teachings about Christ and then moves from there. This means understanding the gospel. This means not only reading the gospel for devotion's sake, but reading the gospel for study's sake. It means seeking out mature Christians and asking questions and testing theories. It also means being discipled. Establishing yourself in the foundational teachings of Christ and the teachings about Christ means going up the mountain. Now, what do I mean by that? In the book of Exodus, we hear about the Israelites, so they've crossed over the Red Sea and they're in the Sinai Peninsula. And the Mount Sinai is there and they're not allowed to touch it because it's holy ground. If you touch it, you die. But Moses was allowed to go up the mountain. So what happened? Moses would go up the mountain. He would sit in the presence of God. And then he would come back down the mountain and tell the people about it. Now, I reckon the people are pretty happy with that because there's no sacrifice being on, this, on the plain. It costs you something to go up the mountain. New covenant comes along and God still says, my mountain is holy. But now you're all welcome. An immature Christian is content to hang out with Moses and does not want to pay the price to go up the mountain. And an immature Christian, the characteristics of that means is someone who is just happy to come in church on Sunday and hang around those people who go up the mountain because they're not willing to pay the price to go up the mountain themselves. What we don't understand, though, that going up the mountain's hard because what happens is that you put your backpack on and you throw all your rubbish into it and you carry it up there with you. But what those on the plane don't realise is that although the steps are hard, every step you take, you dump something. Yeah. 
and your burden becomes lighter. So by the time you get to the top, your bag's empty. Now, when you come back down the mountain, you might pick up stuff again, because we all do. But each time you go up the mountain, you realise that the stuff you're dumping actually isn't that important. And next time you come down, you might not pick it back up again. That's the characteristic of a mature Christian who's willing to go up the mountain. Point two. A mature Christian stops pointing out everyone else's sins and starts confessing their own. A quote I read when researching this says, I'm sorry, I don't know who said it. I know I am experiencing a fresh touch of God when I stop confessing everyone else's sins and start confessing my own. Jesus, in Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, talks about how we judge. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standards with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. A mature Christian comes to a place where they can see their own sin and how glaring it is. And they focus on repenting of that and stop trying to be the watchdogs of the world. Now, there are times to speak truth into others' lives. But a mature Christian is less likely to judge simply because these words in Matthew 7 have struck their hearts and they understand the weakness of their own flesh. Another point. Mature Christians know when to speak and when to watch their words. James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able to control the whole body. We all make mistakes, more mistakes than we care to admit, more than often than not. But spiritual maturity comes when we're being careful about the words that we speak. Immature Christians can't help but speak their opinions, trying to correct everyone around them. They are the self-appointed spiritual police. (laughs) There's been times when, and I've seen it happen to others, where after I've spoken, I get bailed up 
by someone telling me all the things that I've said wrong or I've missed or how I should have said it differently and, and all that sort of stuff. Little do some people realise that pretty much for every minute that you spend preaching is about an hour's worth of prep. So if I'm preaching for 40 minutes, it usually means I've been prepping for 40 hours and there's a potential that I've considered the things I've put in and taken out. Um, now, I'm happy for correction. Don't, don't get me wrong. If I've said something wrong, then if you, I, I deserve to be bailed up. But immature Christians will come and speak because of stuff that they don't potentially like, usually because it makes them feel quite uncomfortable because God's trying to speak to them about stuff. The opposite side of that, immature Christians can't help but speak their opinions. The opposite side of the same coin is that immature Christians are also determined to maintain brotherly love at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing the central truth of revelation. They'll sit and allow someone to do stuff that contradicts the gospel simply so they don't feel they want to condemn or judge them. Mature Christians know when to speak and when to watch their words. Another point. Mature Christians are less concerned about themselves and more concerned about Jesus. Now, a quote that's actually attributed to C.S. Lewis. Unfortunately, C.S. Lewis didn't say it. Rick Warren apparently said it. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. John 15 verses 1 to 15. We're not going to go there because it's a bit long. And Jesus is speaking about the true vine. And pretty much talks about that growth in faith and holiness does not happen via dependence on self but via dependence on abiding by Christ alone. If you get cut off from the main root, you will die. Growth does not happen via ourselves. Mature Christians understand this and don't take credit for something that they have not done. They just humbly follow Jesus. Mature Christians also don't try and defend themselves. They allow Jesus to do that, especially if you're speaking the truth. Last point. Mature Christians take steps to build on their faith. Second Peter chapter one, starting at verse five. For this very reason. 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. Faith, goodness, knowledge of God from his word, self-control. Perseverance, through hardships, godliness, mutual affection for other believers and for the church. Mature Christians don't sit idle in their faith. They don't assume that God will do all the work inside of them and that they don't have anything to do. Because clearly we are called to make every effort to draw near to him. Okay. Are we all right? Yeah. Very quiet. I'm okay. I don't need a feisty church like Dave needs a feisty church. I just want to make sure I haven't lost you, that's all. Yeah. Okay, we're back in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the, teaching, in the techniques of deceit. So what Paul is saying here, that immature Christians are still vulnerable to the deceit and teachings of ill-intentioned people. So now this is part and parcel of the strategies of the devil. He uses people to deceive and to distract those of God. But this also includes people internal. It also means people in the church who promote false, promote false teachings and who promote an agenda of power. And funnily enough, I was talking to someone midweek. I spoke to them last week and then midweek as well. And we were talking about how often the people who we say we love the most are sometimes our biggest critics. And they're the ones that hammer us the most. And sometimes that's done in love and we need to hear it. But sometimes that's also done because they don't understand the journey that you're on and the choices that you're making or the ministry that you've been appointed to and they're, they're adverse to that. Now, we need to remember that the church is made up of people from all different walks of life, people who were strangers and outsiders, groups of people who had previously been in, con in conflict with each other, people whose former way of life was the opposite of what God intended. If you want to know more about that, 
just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 again. And this is how the church grows, or how it's supposed to grow. Now, it's good that we, we grow, New Spring, most churches, but often the growth that we see is from de-church people being rechurched here. It's not usually people walking in off the streets. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a comment. But normal church, church growth is the inclusion of ever-new reconciled enemies and vulnerable babies who are at risk of losing their way. They need to grow with the guidance of the gifts that Christ gives. Remember, the gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And it's through the gifts and the guidance of the gifts and the unity of the community that establishes them in the stability of truth. Now, none of us have ever, we never fully arrive. This side of Christ returning, we're never going to get there. But we must always look to grow in unity, in the faith and knowledge of God and in Christ's likeness. We must understand that we never grow independent of God, we grow up into him. There's a big difference. Okay. Verses 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knitted together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working in each individual part. Now, I had a meeting with Eva <laughs> I got a message from her actually because Eva's preaching this passage tonight and I think we both sort of just sat there and was like, what on earth is that saying? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to have to study that. Mm. Now truth. But speaking the truth in love. So that, that can be more accurately, accurately translated as true thing. Speaking, acting and living in truth. So if your um, translation... So some mind says speaking the truth, but some say speaking or living the truth is potentially a more accurate translation. So what Paul is saying here is that a life lived in falsehood, which is opposite of the truth, puts believers adrift on the stormy sea. And so a truth-filled existence becomes the way to grow into Christ. What does that mean? It means speaking with integrity. It means professing the truth. It means speaking the truth to others. And it means living by the truth. Love is the key. Love is the doorway through which truth enters. If you speak the truth and live the truth, 
and live in integrity, but it's not done in love, you've missed the point. Same coin, different side. And all embracing love, which is indifferent to the truth, also stands condemned. The heart of the proclamation of truth is love. And a life of love is the embodiment of truth. The amount of times I've had, que- I've had conversations with people over the years and they absolutely hammer people and they go, well, I'm speaking the truth. Well, <laughs> good effort. <laughs> but what you've, you, you're winning a point. Like, what are you doing? We all do it. I know I've done it. I'm a pretty good arguer. Where's my wife? She's at the back. Go ask her. (laughs) But the thing is, if you're just doing it to win a point or an argument, then that's why often I don't like listening to debates. I was listening to a debate between Tim Keller and some atheist the other day. And I used to listen to a lot of debates between Christian Hitchens and... Dawkins and all those other nuff-nuffs and, you know, some Christian scholar. And I always get frustrated because they're pointless. Because all they're doing is just trying to score a point. They don't listen to each other. And half the time they're actually debating. When you really listen to it, they're actually debating different things. And they're debating across each other. So if we're just debating people and there's no love there, you've missed the point. We're not the spiritual police. Now, these last two verses also talk about growth. Now, we must be clear that Paul does not mean growth in terms of quantity a numerical expansion of the church's members. Growth is talk, uh, Paul here is talking about growth in terms of quality and increasing approximation of believers to Christ. Growth towards Christ. Now it's done by the body being fitted and knit together. Now, this is the same sort of compound words that chapter 2 and chapter 3 uses. Unity between God and Christ. Unity between Christ and the church. Unity between Jews and Gentiles. There's a coming together. This language is repeated over and over and over again. So what are we doing? We are in this together. Everyone contributes to growth. They do that in love. And it's according to the power working in us and according to the measure of Christ's gift. We need to remember that we are a new humanity. 
humanity. We've been made alive in Christ. And as a new creation, we are now part of a new community of equals, Jews and Gentiles together. Our role as a new people of God is held in unity in Jesus Christ to grow in love towards maturity, which is to become more Christ-like. And every part actually needs to do its job. Some people think of the bath, oh, sorry, some people think of the church as a pyramid with the pastors at the top. And we're just all underlings doing his bidding. <laughs> it's not that, believe me. I work with Dave, he's not that at all. Others think of the church as a bus where the pastor's the bus driver. And we're all just these passive passengers who are just along for the ride. God wants to see the church wants us to see the church as a body where every part does its share. And if one part doesn't do its share, then the whole body suffers because it's not working in unity. Okay. Closing up. That was a big hint. (laughs) Sorry. We joked about that at the start of the service. (laughs) So, this is Paul's vision of the church. A society of newly created people made alive by the Spirit, living generously in unity and diversity and growing maturity. These are the characteristics of what Paul calls a life worthy of the calling to which God has called us and to which now Paul urges us to lead. We're not called to be a church that blindly holds on to tradition, to the status quo, that's resistant to change, complacent of the current situation. Nor is Paul calling us to a radical church that wants to disperse and dispense with all tradition and the institution altogether that runs before God and doesn't want to walk at his pace. A church that follows the ebb and flows of culture so closely that it doesn't look any different. These are the things that God is not calling us to. Paul casts a vision of a church that has a deepening fellowship, an eagerness to maintain unity, and to recover it if it's lost. A membership that is active and engaged and a people who are steadily growing in maturity by holding the truth in love. And that is a life worthy of the call.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your big plan is a life of unity. That your vehicle to reconcile the world is a community of people that are called to continually go up the mountain because that's where you are. That's where growth happens. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy and that when we miss the mark, that your forgiveness is there waiting for us. In fact, it's already been given. Lord, I pray that you speak to this community this morning. That you encourage them and you and ignite them into stop thinking that they're passengers on a bus. But they are members of a body that isn't functioning properly simply due to their lack of engagement, to their lack of giftings. Father, I thank you that you are a God who invites and encourages, not one who condemns and destroys. And that it is in this that we are able to flourish as human beings. Because it is in you who we exist. And apart from you, we are nothing. Thank you for your mighty son. Thank you for the gift that he gave. Thank you for the calling of each of our lives. Amen.